I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Precipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, legal innovation, and the impact tech is having on the law. Today's episode, we're talking ransomware with Kelly Geary of Epic Insurance Brokers and Consultants and Rich Gatz of Coalition. So October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, so it's apropos that we're talking ransomware in today's episode. I have a conversation with Kelly Geary, who's the National Practice Leader of Executive Risk and Cyber and Professional Services Claims at Epic, which is one of America's largest insurance brokers. Joining us also is Rich Gatz. He's Claims Counsel at Coalition, which is a Silicon Valley-based cyber insurer that takes a tech focus on handling cyber claims. Kelly and Rich and I have a good talk about what ransomware is, what kind of insurance you need to protect against it, the history of cyber insurance itself, and what happens behind the scenes when a business is hit with a ransomware attack. Both Rich and Kelly are lawyers. But they've also been in the insurance biz for a really long time. They literally got into the cyber insurance world when it was barely a thing. In fact, both of them had a hand in writing some of the earliest cyber insurance policies out there. I got into the cyber space back in probably 2004 when cyber started to emerge as a product. I was on the carrier side and, you know, the carriers at that point were desperately trying to figure it out and figure out, you know, what kind of product it would really evolve to be. Um, so honestly, they wanted me to draft a cyber policy. And so they just sent me to a bunch of cyber uh, seminars, which had like probably 10 or 15 people in them at the time. Uh, today, they probably have thousands um, attend those conferences. Where were you pulling for reference the policy language? Because obviously it didn't exist then. No, we were working off tech E&O policies, media liability policies, and just miscellaneous professional liabilities. So my background has always been in professional liability, financial lines, and specialty lines. The ransomware coverage in particular comes from K&R policies. So we pulled from K&R policies. And really, initially, at least from my perspective, the policies started to grow up around breach notification laws. And so by 2004, 2005, what the demand at that point was really mostly for notification expenses and identity theft monitoring and things like that. You know, they were coverage to provide companies with some sort of risk transfer for, you know, complying with the breach notification laws that were popping up. Rich, how do you get into the cyber world? Because again, like Kelly, you have a law degree, but you have an insurance background. And then at some point in your career, I see you move over to the cyber world. It's interesting. I am involved in cyber insurance because I knew what a Bitcoin was in 2013. It's the whole reason, whole basis for it. I was working for Fireman's Fund, rest in peace. And it was right after the Great Recession, was handling large law, large accountants, I think that might even have been where I first met Kelly um, back in the day. And so it was a very tumultuous time for those entities, right? And so I think I had, you know, 112, 114 claims and I had $70 million up in reserves. So I was in front of senior claims management weekly trying to get funds reserved for to pay out some of these claims. And at the end of one of these meetings, one of our, our senior technical directors said, does anyone know what Bitcoin was? And I did. I had been involved in Bitcoin for about eight months at that point, and I knew what it was, and I started chatting about it. And of course, nobody understood what I was talking about. And I said, well, hey, why don't I draft something up and I can kind of explain this to you guys and maybe tie it to professional liability insurance. And so I did. I drafted a white paper. Supposedly, it went up pretty high. And then a couple months later, they're like, hey, Rich, we're going to be um, drafting a cyber insurance policy. 
which I'd, I'd never heard of before. And this was, again, 2013. And w- would you like to be kind of our, our technology subject matter expert on it? I'm like, sure. Yeah, that'd be great. So I spent the next six weeks, 10, 12 hours a day in a small conference room with five other brilliant people. And we drafted a policy from scratch. Found out later after I left that they just also scrapped that entire policy. But it was a great learning experience because I think anyone in the insurance industry, especially a claims person or someone that sees claims or interprets insurance coverage, should draft a policy, right, to see from a nuts and bolts perspective how it's created. And then I, I just kind of started handling cyber claims. Um, and then I moved around a little bit with a focus on privacy-related subject matter and um, technology subject matter and um, was lucky enough to start working at CNA Insurance in their cyber technology media department where we solely focused on that. That commenced in 2017, which was kind of the, I don't know if you can really use the term renaissance for something more new, but you know that's when the cyber claims started getting pretty heavy-handed and I mean, I remember the first five-figure ransomware claim we had come in that, that caused a lot of stress. And of course, now we're, we're at where we are now. Kelly, when you first talk about draft of the policies, I assume ransom was not on the radar yet. It wasn't really to any great extent. I do remember back in um, the mid sort of 2000s, adding cyber extortion, a cyber extortion insuring agreement um, into the policy and sort of laughing with the underwriters, they we were just throwing it in, you know, just for fun. We never, never imagined it would be what it is today. But what was the impetus for that, though? I mean, you must have, it must have, you heard about it, talked about it. Yeah, I mean, cyber extortion or ransomware has been around for a while, I want to say, um, way before these breach notification laws popped up. It wasn't as you know prevalent, obviously, as it is today. And there was that sort of element of the potential, right, the potential for those attacks. And I think early on, and Rich, you may have better knowledge on this than I do, but Early on, those attacks and the demands were very low. They were about, you know, $500. They, you'd see repeat offenders. So the cyber extortion coverage that we were adding to these policies was really sort of targeted to deal with that very low level, you know, kind of nuance uh, or nuisance, I guess, type ransomware event. And Rich, you mentioned, I think it was 2017, 2018, talking about your first five-figure ransom where episode, but it, that kind of pales into comparison to what you're seeing now. When did you start seeing ransomware happen in general? And then when did it make this jump to you're talking to millions of dollars? I would say my first real experience with it was 2014, 2015, and it was very small, right? I actually first heard about it through um, the cryptocurrency circles that I was in. I had a, a good friend that worked at a trading company in Chicago, and we used to talk crypto all the time. He's like, yeah, all of our all of our servers got hacked. <laughs> they want three hundred dollars in Bitcoin, which in today, which is a lot of money now, though. Well, That's a well, lot of money. Well, Sixty five thousand bucks. Well, back then, <laughs> I, I think it's almost sixty seven today. But back then, I think Bitcoin was like, it, it might have been even one hundred and fifteen dollars, right? So the thing is, is it was one of those kind of fire and forget kind of things. You just send out a bunch of executables willy nilly throughout the the ether, and then hope that it hits somewhere and encrypts something and. Once, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it was like a self, you know, imploding file system or whatnot, but he had to basically buy the Bitcoin for his company, send it out to the address. And once confirmed, they, they unlocked the, the, the files. But um, 
you know, it seems like, you know, every five months in the cyber insurance space is like five years in other insurance spaces. I mean, it'd be like if you were doing, you know, Nat Cat insurance claims and every week you had a tornado, right? Um, so it, it's one of those things where it's really difficult to kind of look back and say, oh, I remember when it got bad. It was just, it was bad initially. And then it's just been getting worse and worse and worse and worse. But, you know, I mean, I think, you know, Coalition, where I work now, we, we have a, a claims report that comes out and we've seen a massive increase in the amount of ransomware and also the size of ransomware. I think, you know, upwards of 47% increase on our policyholders in the market generally. So, you know, it's getting worse. It's, you know, we don't see any reprieve on in going forward right now. It's going to continue to get worse. And that's why, you know, we always say it's really important to have cyber insurance, right? So that you can help combat that at least from, from a monetary perspective and also get the proper um, consultants and vendors in place to assist you in recovery. So Kelly, let's talk about that. You need to have these cybersecurity policies in place, but what specific coverage is needed to cover the ransomware? What does it entail? What's an insured getting when they get the policy? Most cyber standalone cyber insurance policies today cover, you know, cyber extortion or ransomware. They're all sort of use different terminology. And what you get from a coverage perspective, again, and most of the policies out there is you will get coverage for computer forensics. So somebody to come in um, and, and sort of assess the situation and help you sort of manage through it. A, a ransom negotiator, somebody they can sort of interface with the bad guys and help you sort of talk them down potentially off the demand. Um, it will cover uh, a breach counsel to help you deal with any kind of legal issues. And then payment of the ransom itself, if that's the direction that the organization decides to go. You know, there's also coverage for business interruption loss in the event that you are down for a period of time as a result of the incident. Data restoration coverage as well. You know, I have seen some policies that won't pay for the ransom itself, but I would say the majority of policies, the majority of cyber markets will. So that's interesting you bring it up because I think just last month you saw a push from the U.S. federal government to threaten to sanction the payment of ransoms by crypto, cryptocurrency. So do you think that that might be the future, how these policies are going, where they may not cover for the payments? I don't know. You know, I know that AXA Excel took that position in France in particular, um, you know, working with the, the French government, they took the position that they would not pay ransom under their or not insure that piece of it. I have seen, I mean, if you think about kidnap ransom coverage itself, um, there have been attempts in various countries at various points in time to ban the payment of the ransom because for moral hazard reasons, right? Like it's just encouraging the, the argument being that if you allow insurance to cover that portion of it, you're just sort of encouraging either insurance fraud or you're encouraging more people to commit to go down that road. But by and large, uh, countries never really stuck with that. So I don't know that that will be the way the U.S. government will go with it. I know that there are a number of different pieces of legislation, um, even within the United States, as well as outside, I think, Australia and maybe Spain, where they're talking about different, you know, not necessarily banning the ransom, but basically imposing um, reporting obligations around the payment of the ransom, at least the, the foreign or international laws that I've seen. And then, of course, some of the domestic laws that we've seen by some of the states are coming out with 
saying that municipalities, federal agencies, or state agencies cannot use public funds to pay ransom. I think North Carolina and a couple other states have sort of floated those, as well as New York, I think. You wrote an article recently, Kelly, which I will put a link to on the episode page for the podcast, saying how cyber security coverage is changing and it's not as easy to get the coverage anymore. And there's certain things expected of an insured, uh, such as two-factor authentication, enabling stuff like that before you can even get the coverage. What other stuff are insurance companies requiring today in 2021 that they may not require even last year or a couple years ago? Well, multi-factor authentication is number one uh, for sure on the list. Endpoint detection, uh, network segregation, you know, carriers are really looking at or looking for organizations to demonstrate a real commitment to network security and data privacy as a whole on a holistic level. It really does even go beyond some of the network security controls, but for sure, the underwriting is very, very different than it was, say, six or nine months ago. So, Rich, what's a good segue for you? You're coming from the insurer side. What are you expecting of insurers and what should insurers be doing in general? Like, what should they be doing to protect themselves? So I'm going to try not to be overly salesy for my company, but it's going to be hard. And I hope everyone understands I'm coming at this in good faith. And I think that what you can do generally is you can look at the New York guidelines for cyber insurance companies. They recently came out with some risk management guidelines that are very thorough and very good. They basically outline how an insurance company in New York should help policyholders handle cyber risk and also underwrite that cyber risk. And it, it's really what Coalition does. And the reason I say that is because we don't really do, you know, we, we can do manual submissions, things like that, but it's not a paper policy that asks a bunch of questions. We have an apparatus by which we'll actually scan your network to see, do you have any vulnerabilities, critical vulnerabilities that might increase your risk, right? And I think that's where things are going to go from an underwriting perspective, because a lot of times, as I'm sure Kelly can say, is that you're playing a game of telephone with applications for insurance. You're having an, in, an insured write something down. They might not be sophisticated in answering questions of, do you have multi-factor authentication in place? Do you have an endpoint detection response solution in place? They're telling that to a retail agent who then may tell that to a wholesale broker who then is referring that to their insurance business partners, right? And so something might be lost in translation. And then, you know, you're not fully sure what the network footprint is for that company, Right. And so I think that we're going to go towards underwriting that, you know, looks at what the insured's network looks like, looks to see what type of computer systems they're looking at in order to kind of defray this risk from these black swan events like COVID and everyone rushing to work remotely and then opening themselves up to poor, you know, information security practices because they're a small mom and pop business or even a larger business that doesn't have the bandwidth to secure all their remote access connections to their company. When we come back, Kelly and Rich talk about what goes on behind the scenes during the ransomware attack. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. 
our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient, legal services powered by technology. We'll get back to the discussion about ransomware in just a second, but I wanted to remind you at tlpodcast.com, there's a dedicated page for every episode we have. And on that episode page, you can find more information about our guests and links to a lot of the stuff we talk about. Today's episode would be a good page to check out because both Kelly and Rich have written a bunch of great articles on cybersecurity, and I'll put links to some of them up there. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Kelly Geary and Rich Gatz about ransomware. We pick up the conversation about what goes on behind the scenes in a ransomware attack. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of this, the, the ransomware attack. It comes in, Kelly, I assume you could be the first point of contact, or sometimes they will go directly to the insured. I know the coalition has a hotline. But let's just say, for the sake of this conversation, they come to you first, you as, as the producer. Uh, what do you do? What do you, tell the, what do you tell the insured to do and what, what, what goes on? Assuming they do have cyber insurance in place, and there's still a fair amount of our clients that do not for various different reasons. The first thing that they should do is call, you know, as you mentioned, the hotline. All of the carriers that we work with um, have 24-7 hotlines. In most instances, that number is going to um, a, a breach coach who will pick up the phone and start to help the insured manage through the crisis whether that's engaging computer forensic firm, whatever it is that they're doing, PR related, uh, sometimes, you know, helping them with scripts for internal people as well as external. If I get a call and they do not have <laughs> cyber insurance, and I have had a few of those, that is basically what we do is we try to get them connected with the people and the vendors that um, the carriers have in place already. Rich, moving to you, you're there at the insurance company. What goes on? Someone calls the hotline or Kelly reaches out and says, hey, one of our insureds has a breach. What's the first thing you do? What's going on behind the scenes? The first thing is, you know, have the insured take a breath, right? You need to calm them down because oftentimes, even with our, our larger accounts, this is something that they've never experienced before. So, you know, I've, I've had people call me up crying. I've had people call me up angry. And so you have to kind of be a little bit of a therapist and say, hey, you know what? I just want to let you know that, you know, Kelly did a great job getting you this policy with Coalition. It's good insurance. And hopefully you can say this about all your insurance carrier partners, Kelly, and say, you know, you have good insurance. Cyber extortion is specifically covered. Here's your limit. Here's your retention. This is typically what we see here. Now, let me get some additional information about your network. So we try to triage. How many endpoints? Do you use Microsoft Exchange on-prem? Do you use Microsoft 365? Do you use G Suite or some other type of email tenant? What is currently impacted? Are you seeing a degradation in service? Um, are you completely underwater? Um, have you disconnected your computer systems from the internet? Right, Because we want to make sure that we're not propagating the ransomware to other computer systems or affiliates or other networks that might be connected to it. Try not to turn things off because there is some ransomware variants that, you know, on reboot will encrypt system files. We don't really see that too much, but, you know, generally, you know, we want to make sure that we're keeping the system safe, right? If you can't disconnect from the internet except by turning something off, then you can do that as well. And then we just kind of go through that checklist. What do you do? Do you have personal identifiable information? Do you have private health information? Can you send me a copy of the ransom note? Um, have you responded to the threat actor? 
right? Because we want to kind of limit that response to the professionals, which is interesting because just recently some ransomware variants came out and said, hey, we're not going to negotiate with professional ransomware negotiators, right? So that's an added wrinkle to it. But really to get that information. And then while we're on that call, reaching out to privacy counsel for them to run conflicts checks and also look to our forensic panels and IR firms to see who can respond, who has experience with this specific threat actor, and who can we get on a call within the next 30 minutes to an hour, right? Because time kills, speed kills. The quicker you can respond to an incident, um, the better able you are to remediate and also keep the damage from propagating further, as I said earlier, right? So, you know, it's all about speed, 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 and to make sure that, that we're getting those, you know, consultants and vendors in place as quickly as possible. So once that's done, we usually have a scoping call set up next 30 minutes to an hour, introduce the insured with one of their technical, um, you know, make sure that they have someone with technical expertise in regards to their network on the call. And then we are introducing them to the privacy council, introducing them to forensics, have a technical discussion, approve the statement of works for forensics and counsel if needed, and then move forward with a forensic kickoff, hopefully in a couple hours after that. So the goal is get people involved, stop the bleeding, apply a tourniquet as quickly as possible. And then, you know, once that's done, kind of regroup and assess. You just mentioned there's a, you've seen some recent variants where they, the, uh, the bad guys didn't want to negotiate with professionals. I assume they only wanted to talk to the, the business owner, the insured. Yeah. I, I want to say it's Revil and some other larger threat groups, but you know, there's some fairly renowned infamous ransomware negotiation companies that are very well known in the space, even from threat actor groups. And so, you know, they don't want to deal with professionals. They don't want to deal with an entity that has, you know, pages and pages of information in regards to, okay, does this variant exfil? Does this variant not exfil? Are they going to re-extort the insured, you know, or the, or the, or the victim? What's the percentage likelihood that they're going to come down 50% on the demand or 65% or 75%, things like that, right? I call it kind of a quadruple extortion, right? Because we have extortion with data encryption. We have um, secondary extortion, which is data exfil. You had triple extortion. That's kind of a new event where you're having threat groups or variants reach out to customers or victims directly via telephone or email. I've had several claims where um, the threat actor will compromise an email account and send emails to all of the employees, threatening their personal information and other things. And now you have this quadruple extortion, which is saying, if you try to negotiate with a professional consultant on this, we're not going to entertain any decryption key and we're going to automatically publish your data. So they're just consistently trying to stay ahead of the game, consistently trying to leverage the unsophisticated victims and um, stakeholders as part of the event to kind of force effectuation of payment. And once you've got the team in place, you got your, your attorneys, you got your forensics, you got the other professionals. Rich, what's your involvement day to day at that point? You be in the insurance company. We still want to be very present in everything because we have unique experience handling a lot of these claims. And we really kind of want to be an advocate for our policyholder, right? Because, I mean, it's you have to be a little bit of a middleman and try to explain things to them that might be overly technical or, you know, overly legal. Because uh, I'm not a technical person per se. I've just unfortunately handled a bunch of ransomware claims, right? So it's really to be an advocate and also ensure, of course, that we're maintaining the provisions of the insurance policy. Insurance policy is a contract. We are as beholden to it as our policyholder is. And so we want to make sure that, at least, you know, the coalition, that we're providing as much coverage as possible, 
right? And so by doing that, we need to stay active in the claim. For instance, I had a claim where they were considering payment of ransom and the ransom amount was fairly large. And it was like, well, okay, why are you guys doing this? It's like, well, it's going to take too long to get our data back. We're not going to be able to do it. I'm like, okay, are the backups viable? And they said, yes. I'm like, okay, well, guess what? We have a digital asset restoration coverage where we will provide vendors or consultants to recreate these digital assets to get you guys up and running quicker. Okay. And I'm like, oh, wow, we, we didn't know that. I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's why you want to stay involved, right? So you definitely don't want an insurance carrier that is going to basically assign a breach counsel or privacy counsel, assign to forensics, and then check in every three months, especially on a ransomware incident, right? Things change. They change daily. They change by the minute, right? So you want to make sure that you have someone that can be an active partner with the insured, with breach counsel, with the forensics teams, which, with their brokers, right? And try to provide that additional expertise that can be helpful. Um, another example is that we had one claim with um, one variant that we're able to effectuate like an 80% decrease in the ransom demand. And this was a substantial demand, a $3.5 million demand or something obscene, 2.5 or 3.5, something like that. But we got them down to $250,000. Okay, Coalition Incident Response did this for us. And we did that. And then we were able to use that knowledge with that threat actor that we had to then get another similar kind of reduction, not as not as extensive, but similar on another claim with that same threat actor a week later, right? And so if insurance isn't involved, if we're not talking amongst ourselves, like internally as a claims team, then we're not able to potentially benefit our policyholders with that additional information. Kelly, back to you. What are you doing with the insured when you got the team in place trying to deal with the ransomware? I mean, we try to do the same. You know, we try to help our clients or the insureds understand what's going on. Because I think to Rich's point, you know, this is a true crisis, even for the most sophisticated group of individuals at various organizations. And time is of the essence, um, and they can panic a little. So it's it's trying to help them calm down and understand, you know, what they should be doing. The other thing that we found that we try to do is we try to help them understand the process. You know, this is a relatively new product for people still. So they don't always really know what to expect. And there are a lot of players involved in a response, uh, especially a ransomware event, and it does move very quickly. So it can be overwhelming and they don't really understand all the time who is supposed to be doing what um, and what the role of the carrier is, what the role of the breach council is, how those are different. It's a fairly new product still, so they don't always understand exactly what to expect. And because ransomware event itself is so fast paced and time sensitive, they can be overwhelmed and very confused about all the various vendors that they're interacting with and are asking them for information and you know what does the policy cover and you know a lot of questions around that. And Rich, I read somewhere, I think it was an article you wrote, or maybe it was a, another uh, program you were in, you emphasize there is no harm in reporting, even if nothing comes of it, even if there's no actual ransom attack. Explain that. Explain why there's not a, not a harm and why it's good. We have a very robust pre-claims process. And what this means is that our policy provides coverage for not only actual, but suspected security failures or data breaches. And because of our in-house security capability, we'll actually help verify that there's nothing going on. You know, one instance, I had a, a pre-claim come in the other day. The insured had an affiliate that they had some network connection to that got hit with ransomware. And so hooked them up with Coalition Incident Response. We deployed uh, 
an EDR solution on their network and are reviewing for unauthorized access. So far, so good, right? That's not going to show up as a claim. It's not going to show up on their loss runs. And so the reason I say that is because we want to know when things get funky on your network. I've had way too many claims where it's like, hey, we had some data corruption issues on the file server, didn't think anything of it. We reformatted, reinstalled from backups. Three weeks later, entire networks, entire computer systems are encrypted, right? Because the way that this malware and these banking trojans and TrickBot, Emotet, Mimikatz, and things like that work on the computer systems, retail antivirus isn't going to catch it. 99% 99% of the time. Maybe it catches it more than that, but it, it's not by a lot, right? And so a lot of insurance kind of have this false sense of security and, oh, I have you know Windows Defender, which is very, very good. I have these other things and you know what? I am going to be okay. Well, it's like, well, you're not. So you need advanced EDR solutions. You need a little bit more hypervigilance in order to kind of detect these things. And so what we do is we provide that carrot, say, hey, report this to us. If it's nothing, no harm, no foul. But if it is something, we can fire up the Death Star and get you guys a full legal and forensic investigation. Hopefully stop this before it hits. You know, because if you can stop ransomware before encryption, that's like 80% of the game. What are you seeing trend-wise how the bad guys are getting in? My top two right now are Microsoft Exchange zero-day vulnerabilities and uh, remote desktop protocol. So, you know, if you have open access to your computer systems, Um, If you've not patched your on-premises Microsoft Exchange server, that's where where we're seeing most of the access. Now, you still have, you know, business email compromises that, you know, can leverage different things within the environment and, you know, executables sent to, you know, from a trusted email account to another trusted email account, things like that. But I would say most of what we're seeing is Microsoft Exchange related. Some zero days with some VPNs, I think uh, FortiGate and uh, SonicWall seeing some of that as well. And then, you know, obviously if, if you have a you know, port 3830 open, not behind a VPN or MFA, then it's very easy for someone to just search that on the internet and, and get access to your network. Ransomware is a service. So it's not like every bad actor out there is creating their own program to lock up a system. They actually are using other people's softwares. How often are you seeing that? How often are you seeing people using other people's software to, to lock up systems? So ransomware as a service is really difficult to identify when you're going through the event, right? But we do know that there's some variants that are more likely to be ransomware as a service than not, Rievel, Conti, others. But, you know, the problem is, is that it basically allows people that just get access to the computer systems to then turn themselves into ransomware threat actors. You don't not only need to build a ransomware executable and deploy it, you also need the access. So if you have kind of like an assembly line kind of construction to that process, it makes it much easier. And it's interesting because I remember back in the day, in the early days of cyber insurance for me, it was all about the data breach. I think Kelly, you alluded to this earlier, right? Like how much your notification costs going to be and you know how much personal identifiable information do you have? Well, if you actually look at it, the amount of data breaches from a pure cyber incident perspective have cratered over the past year and a half. You just don't really see it, right? What you're seeing though is access to that data then turning into a ransomware claim. So I think that's the impact of the RAS, right? Because it's it's way easier for someone who gets access to a network to become an affiliate of a threat actor versus taking a bunch of data, trying to sell it on the dark web and maybe getting you know less than pennies per SSN or something like that. So I think it's been a huge development in the ransomware ecosystem for the worse. We're going to continue to see it. 
Um, just recently, though, I think one larger variant started stealing money from their affiliates. So we'll see how that turns out. <laughs> no um, honor among thieves. Well, I mean, which is weird for a crime syndicate, you know, that actually prides itself on on our among thieves, right? Like if you pay us, we decrypt. But you know, I'm more than happy to watch the cannibalization of right. these, you know, international criminals, you know, continue. The data breaches have gone down because it's more ransom. You're also saying then there's less exfiltration of this information. Is that what you've seen? No. So we, we are actually seeing a ton of exfil of data. If I had to provide a playbook for ransomware, it's get access either through an affiliate or yourself, take as much data as you can, leave, exfil that data, deploy the ransomware, hopefully encrypt backups, but encrypt files. But a lot of people are getting wiser and a lot of entities are getting wiser and they're having better backup protocols, right? And so then, okay, well, we don't need the decryption key. It's like, okay, well, we have hundreds of millions of documents of you know, non, you know, non-public confidential company data, right? What's the value to that? You know, and sometimes the value is not worth paying the ransom. Other times it is. And you know, that's something where um, broker business partners have been very helpful in kind of understanding because and, and, you know, they have a pre-existing relationship with our, our policyholders and saying, hey, you know, like, this is what we're seeing. This is not the insurance carrier just saying don't pay the ransom because they don't want to pay the ransom. It's because it's truly a cost-benefit analysis. But I would say that we're seeing it's more likely than not to have exfil on a ransomware claim, which is different than what it was a year and a half ago. But it's definitely, unfortunately, the new norm. This has been great. Appreciate your time. Kelly? For those out there who do not have cyber insurance, and for those who may have cyber insurance that want to talk to you, maybe maybe change their broker, how do they get a hold of you? You can reach me at my work email, kelly.geary at epicbrokers.com, or you can reach me on my cell at 917-468-1459. Rich, people want to get a hold of you. How do they find you and learn more about Coalition? They can also feel free to contact me directly at uh, rich at coalitioninc.com. And then obviously, if there's any questions generally about coalition, you can reach out to info at coalitioninc.com. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.